Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had also stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftfully they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you will set them in slippery places. You will make them fall to ruin. How they destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I may tell you of all of your works. This is the word of the Lord. We've already made the uh, comment that the Christian life is lived from the heart level. Talked about that in prayer time. The, uh, The text this morning at one point says, The Lord, or God, is the strength of my heart. Um, the Christian life is about God changing, renewing, if you will, the heart. That's how the Christian life begins. And then it is a series of constant strengthening of the heart. Um, This morning we talked about the idea of covenant, that God makes an everlasting covenant with his people, both Old Testament and New Testament people, all those who look to him and all that he is for them in, as Old Testament looked, the Messiah or New Testament realized who that Messiah was, Jesus Christ. But God is the God who promises to give us a new heart, to take that old heart and, and change it, bring it to life, and then to continually sustain it with life. That is the promise of the scriptures. That's, that's how God primarily acts on behalf of his people, by working on our hearts. And you can't live the Christian life any other way. If you try to live it on the surface, externally, it just turns rancid. It, it, it's, it's unhealthy and nasty what happens 
when it's a surface kind of thing that we paint on without it coming out of the overflow of our hearts. And uh, it's a wonderful thing that God promises. The psalmist, I think, recognized that. He recognized that it, it comes from the heart level. Evidence of that is in verse 26. I want you to turn, turn there, look there with me. And this is the text upon which I want to base what we say about this particular psalm, Psalm 73. Look what it says there in the text. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh, this physical body, he's talking about that. That's what he means when he talks about flesh. That there are times when our flesh can fail, and it it can fail, it can weaken, it can be fatigued, it can be sluggish. And, And the reason for that is because of the heart. It says, my flesh and my heart, the heart begins to struggle. The heart begins to have emotional and spiritual dimensions that, that tend it toward feeling dejected or gloomy or a kind of a burnt out component of it. That's what the psalmist is saying. There are times when my flesh, my physical body begins to become sluggish and, and just not work as it should because my heart is Failing, And it says may fail here, but in the original language, you could read it, my flesh and my heart fail. He's talking here about discouragement. He's talking about um, the whole idea of, of, of uh, despondency and of depression, if you will, to a degree it can lead to that. But he's, he's saying there are times when my flesh and my heart are prone toward those things. They're prone toward discouragement or, or despondency and depression. Um, he's describing how at times things come over him in that regard that not only are emotional and spiritual, but they're also physical. And then he gives us some advice and he really points us to what we ought to do in those kinds of times. What do we do when that happens? What do we do as as believers, when our heart becomes despondent, when our heart begins to feel dejected, when our heart begins to feel gloomy, when we just kind of have a burnt out kind of sense about us because things are pressing in upon, the psalmist gives us great advice. He says to us, fight back. I think that's what he says there. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God... But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What the psalmist is admonishing us to here is to fight back against that. The, the, the rhythm of the Christian life is that we fight those kinds of things. We come after those things. We don't just passively let them control us, but we come against them. And one of the things that God does as he acts on our behalf as he helps us to come against those kinds of things that come over us in the midst of a broken world that we live in. And we are to resist it. But why do they come? I want to I talk about this idea of resisting this morning. I want to look at it from how the psalmist describes it and some of the things that cause it. And part of, I think, coming against it is understanding where the causes of it and don't, don't dwell in those places 
but then also the, how to resist it, how to, to, to come against it. In fact, what I want to do is show you how Jesus did it. Because I think Jesus was bombarded with the temptation to go here, to go my, to, to the point of my flesh and my heart failing. I think there was a point in his life where he was tempted to let that happen, but he pushed against it. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But, but what can cause that? What can cause us to have those kinds of things happen? And in this particular psalm, I think he gives us a couple of things. One, I think, that will cause it and, uh, and complicate our coming against it and cause it to rise up more than we want it to rise up, I think, is this whole issue of comparison. It's what he says here in verse 3. He says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on to describe them. He says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. He, he describes them, and he says, and then people jump on their bandwagon here in this text. The same thing. And they say, they say, these people who jump on the bandwagon of these kinds of people, they say, how can God know? They, they begin to mock God as they see these people. Um, but what happened to the psalmist? What got him there, I think, was he began, as he would say, to, 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 to focus in the wrong place. He began to compare a bit. He began to look at his life and their life. And this issue of comparison is a dangerous thing for us in our culture today. Um, I think it's even amplified in our culture today with the whole social network um, situation that we're in. There's some very good things in social networking. I, I saw even this week there were some I don't, I don't have it. My wife has Facebook, but I saw some posts that she had on hers about Wednesday night. There were some wonderful posts about the ministry to the kids and the opportunity we had to speak into their lives and those kinds of things. So it has, it has good. It can, it can spread good things. But one of the things that I think, if we're not careful, if we, if we let it to get a place in our life that is too heavy, I think what it often can do is stir up this whole issue of comparison. What's somebody else doing? What's somebody else, ha- is what's happening in their life? And you begin to, to see their life, but the problem with seeing their life is you only see a narrow little snippet of their life. Now, there are occasionally when people put difficult things on there, certainly, and that potential is there where people can, can publish the negative, but Overall, that's not what gets published there. It's the positive. It's, it's the positive things in life and the good things that happen to them or, or pictures that show the bright side of things. And the problem is, I think, balance. The problem is you begin to get an imbalanced view because you only see one side and you begin to be swayed to think things actually are, are sometimes better than they are or at least not in the reality you live in. And so it's dangerous, I think, to, to have a steady diet of that if you don't realize that it, 
it may appear one way, and certainly there are good things, and it's nothing wrong with those kinds of things. People don't always intentionally try to deceive by appearances. It's just the natural flow of it. But it can, because of the distortion of only seeing one side, you begin to you begin to let the temptation of envy grow up and think, well, my life isn't quite like that. And the reality is theirs isn't either totally like that. The reality is that we all live in a broken world. The reality is it's not all positive. And sometimes everybody doesn't smile in the picture. And we need to understand that. And so the issue of comparison can can somehow get us in trouble. It can get us out of balance. Um, it, it paints a glowing picture of things that maybe aren't quite as glowing as they appear, or at least our mind thinks they appear. So comparison can be dangerous. A second thing I think that happened to the psalmist is that he, it can, he lost perspective. In this comparison, again, it's the same kind of thing, but he, he, lost, he lost perspective. And we start to pick up the perspective in verse 17, but remember in verse 2, he said, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped because of the comparison, but also, I think, because he was and had the potential of losing perspective. And he begins to regain it in verse 17. He says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Why? Why does this happen to them and not me or all of those kinds of circumstances. Why is my life different than theirs? But then it goes on to say, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And here he begins to get grounded again. He says, truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they destroyed in a moment? How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. In other words, he begins to, to get his footing again. He begins to get his footing about these who appeared to have no problem and, and it says that pride was their necklace and they had people following them and chirping into their scoffing of God. But then all of a sudden he realizes, you're God, you're God. And in a moment, they are destroyed. This morning in my Sunday school class, we were reminded because we talked about the fact that we have a God who, who is utterly sovereign that the very fact that our heart beats the next beat is because he's chosen that it happen. They aren't these people who seem to be prideful and have no problems and, and gods unto themselves are really not. They are dependent people. They're dependent on the next beat of the heart, which they have no power over. And and as the psalmist begins to walk through this, he begins to realize that. And then he says something interestingly in verse 20. He says, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you rouse yourself in your time, Lord, in your time. Now certainly God doesn't need to be roused, but it's it's a reference to the point when when God decides that our heart stops beating, it stops. That's what we heard this morning. It stops. It stops. And the author of my class said, to some he will say, you fool. And to others he will say, 
Welcome into my kingdom. Your work is over. Your, your time here is done. But either way, it's God who makes that decision. God is the one. And whenever he chooses, whenever he is roused up by his own initiative, then we see the end. And you see, that's what happened to these particular, um, to this particular psalmist, Asap. He, he began to see, began to get perspective. He began to get re-grounded. He began to, to get his footing back. And it was, he goes on in verse 21. This is, he talks about this as that process. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, you see, again, he goes back to the heart. When his heart, when his heart was being pricked, when his heart was being pricked to be prone to envy and, and prone to comparison and prone to losing perspective, this is what happens. And it's a dangerous place. And we need to not put ourselves in those circumstances. We need to not put ourselves in those circumstances of comparison. When, and because the assaults of, of the enemy coming to us and coming and working on our heart will be even greater. And we need to keep perspective. But the truth of the matter is, he will do that. Part of the Christian life is that, that there will be times when we have pressures come upon us, pressures to lead us to discouragement, to despondency, to weariness physically, all of those kinds of things will come. We dare not do things that add to that. We, we dare not put our places the things that will make that easier to come and amplify what comes. But I say to you this morning, no matter how much you stay away from comparison, and no matter how much you attempt to keep perspective, there will be times when I think the enemy will come. He will come and try to, try to tempt you toward that, try to move you toward that, try to get you to be able to say, my flesh and my heart fail. But the answer to that is, but God but God is the strength of my heart. The answer to that is to turn, is to turn and not only avoid comparison and keep perspective, but thirdly, begin by means of the gospel to speak those promises into your life. We have talked about that before in the Psalms, how we need to preach to ourselves, but we need gospel promise. And that's what the psalmist does here. What he does in fact, he began with it. He told the journey. He really told the journey of what had happened. He'd gotten to comparison. He was tempted toward envy. He'd lost perspective, but he'd regained it. But he really started out with testimony. Testimony to the fact that God is the strength of his heart. And also gave us what he used to be the means for that strength. Look at it in verse 1. It says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You see, that's where he lands. That ultimately is where the but God took him and part of the means to which he let God strengthen his heart. Truly, God is good to Israel. What, what does that mean? What does it mean? If you, you were here in this series, you know that at one point we talked about the fact that one of the promises of God to his people is that he will do good to them. 
He will not do harm to them. He promises to do good. And no longer do we need to fear the wrath of God. This morning we sang about it. That it's, it's been put away for all that are in Christ. No longer is he going to bring punitive um, punishment to us. He brings discipline to our lives, certainly, but he doesn't bring punishment. It's all been poured out in Christ. So he now is good and rejoices to do good to his people. And his people are what it means by Israel. Israel's here, I think, in the, in the, the long view of what Scripture teaches us. Israel here is not a nation, not a nation in the Middle East, but the Israel, the true Israel of God, are all those of the Old Testament who looked to the Messiah. Not all Jews, not all of Jewish lineage, but those of that Jewish lineage who looked to Christ, who looked to the Messiah to come. They didn't know it was Jesus Christ, but they looked to the promise. They trusted in the promise. Now today, it's also those who look back to the promise and know that that promise is Jesus Christ, that all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All the promises of the Old Testament people are yes in Christ. All the promises of the New Testament people are yes in Christ. To all who understand that all the promises are yes in Christ, the true Israel. The Bible says in one place, not all Israel is Israel. Not just because you have a lineage of a Jewish lineage but it is the people of faith of all generations. So when it says, truly God is good to Israel, that's a promise we can take, we can claim, we can hold on to. And it's the way in which we come against these kinds of things, the the failing of our flesh and of our heart. Because we look to God, he's the strength of my heart. And the strength comes when we go back to the promise of God. Now, let me, let me take you to another text this morning because I want to look at the example of Jesus. Is this just some kind of theoretical thing or, or is it reality? And I think where we see it is in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 12 and verse 27, we see an interesting thing in the text. Um, here it says in verse 27 of, of John chapter 12, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's, he's approaching the cross. And it says to us in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What, what is going on here? What's happening here? Well, I think it's the kind of thing that happens to us at times, where our, our soul becomes troubled. Now, we can trouble our trouble, as I said, by making comparison and losing perspective, I don't think Jesus did that. So we need to be careful not to trouble our trouble, but the trouble, I think, comes to us as it came to Jesus. The trouble of, of the enemy of our soul who wants to see our flesh and our heart ultimately fail. And he comes to us much like he came to Jesus I think probably what was happening to Jesus, and I I take these words from another, but he describes it, but his soul was troubled in the sense that most probably the kinds of things that were coming to Jesus in his mind, remember he was fully man, He, he knew 
He knew what it was to live as a man. He had a mind. And what certainly must have come into his mind was, this is a dead-end street. Satan whispered, this is a dead-end street, Jesus. He's in the garden. Pressure of what's going to happen and what's coming. The cup that he looks into. It's a dead-end street. Calvary's just a black hole. It is going to hurt like nothing has ever hurt any human before. These rascals aren't worth it. Can you imagine what was being whispered to him? What was tempting him as it came upon him in that hour? His soul was troubled. But what did he do? Look on. It says, And what shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. His heart's troubled. But, but, for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from, came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And we read on. Jesus came against it, but it came to him. The, the temptation to give in, the temptation to not push back against it. What I want to, us to see here is I think Jesus had to push back against it, just like we have to push back against it. He pushed back against it perfectly. Sometimes we let it nip us before we fully push it back. But the example is there. We need to push back. The scripture says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one whom in every respect, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He pushed back perfectly, but he did push back. He didn't remain passive. He trusted the promise of his father. He trusted that that for a purpose he had come to this hour. And God would fulfill that purpose and give him strength to fulfill the purpose. Now, what I want you to see, an interesting text in comparison to this. The reason I think Jesus felt that, felt that temptation to his flesh and his heart failing. The reason I think it it came to him as well is because of what he says in John chapter 14. If you turn over couple of pages in your Bible. Now, he's just said here, my soul is troubled in verse 27 of John. You go over a couple of chapters into John chapter 14, and Jesus says this to his disciples who, who were in the midst of all this turmoil that was going on as well, in the midst of realizing that Jesus is going away. We're going to have to go back to fishing. Has all this been pointless? You know, they think they're thinking that, but certainly there is one putting those thoughts there, tempting them that direction. And this is what Jesus says to them. Verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Well, so far so good. But then he says, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what is this? In one place, Jesus says, my heart is troubled. Two chapters earlier, 
And now he turns to the disciples in the same circumstance, really, of what's happening. Their perspective is different, and what they will endure is different, but same circumstance. He says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. How can that be? How can Jesus' heart be troubled? And he tells them not to let their hearts be troubled. You see the dichotomy there? I think the way we reconcile those two things is, is Jesus is telling them, push back. Push back against those thoughts. Push back against that temptation. Don't just let it come and let it happen and let it overwhelm you, but push it back. Push it back. Jesus pushed it back with the promise of God that he had come to this hour for this purpose. But God had brought him to this hour for this purpose. And in fact, the things that were being whispered to him that it was not a dead-end street, that Calvary was not some black hole with no purpose, that it was, it, it was going to hurt, yes, but it was It was a pain that would accomplish much. And it was a pain that would break forth into glorious joy one day. And in fact, yes, in one sense, these rascals aren't worth it. But the Father has chosen to bring a people unto himself. The Father has chosen by this means to redeem a people. You see, he he pushed back against it with the purpose of God. He pushed back against it with the promise of God. He, He didn't sin, the scripture says. He was without sin. But the temptation of being troubled came nonetheless. Satan attempted to trouble him, brought trouble to him, just as he knew was going to happen to disciples. Just as he knew, he knew what was going to happen to those disciples. He knew they were going to scatter. He knew they were going to deny him. He knew they were going to be as discouraged as they've ever been. Disillusioned as they've ever been. Wondering what in the world all of this had been and for. And that for a time they were going to forget the promises in many ways. But not forever. And he, 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 caught, he told them to push back. And he said, push back with my peace. Push back with what I'm going to accomplish. Push back with the peace that it's, it's, it's going to accomplish between God and man, those he wants to redeem. Push back with the gospel, the promise of the gospel. You see, that's what we need to do as well. We need to be people who push back. We need to be people who, who though at times... We are tempted to feel like our flesh is failing and our heart is failing and we can't go on anymore. And where do we turn but to God? My flesh and my heart fail, but God, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is the promise believers. That's the promise for those that are in Christ. That's the promise that says if we trust him, he will act on our behalf. He will, in fact, be our strength. He will. And how do we know that? 
because of gospel promise, because God is good to Israel. He is good to his people. He will help them. He will draw near to them. He's a present help in trouble. There are multitudes of promises that we can grab and hold on to in the midst of that and overcome. This morning, I don't know where you're at in your walk with him. I don't know how you come in this morning, but I would hope that as you leave, you say things like this. My, fl- my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. Verse 28, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell your works. And end as the psalmist end ended, even as he began. God is good. God is good to Israel. Do you know that in the midst of it, in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the temptation to give in to the lies and the distorted perspective and the comparisons? Sama said, my foot almost slipped, but it didn't. I push back by the grace of God. I pray the same for you. We're going to sing together a song as we close. We've sang it already, but it just says, Lord, I need you. I pray that's the prayer of your heart this morning. Let's stand together. I come and I confess Bowing here I find my rest And without you I fall apart You're the one that guides my heart Lord, I need you, oh, I need you, every hour I need you, my one defense, my righteousness, oh, God, how I need you. sin runs deep your grace is more where grace is found is where you are and where you are Lord I am free holiness is Christ in me where you I am free Holiness Is Christ in me Lord I need you Oh I need you Every hour I need 
defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Father, we declare that you are the strength of our heart. We take refuge in you, Lord, and trust you today. And if there's one who who felt like they were as the psalmist was and their foot seems to be slipping, wondering if it's worth it, wondering if, if, if they've done the right thing in following you. I pray this morning, Lord, that they will understand, they will get new perspective and realize that, yes, yes, they have. And they will make a reaffirmation that you are their refuge and their strength and their hope. And if there's one here this morning who's not taken refuge in you, that, Lord, even today they will realize the promise promise that the psalmist declared that God is good to his people and they'll want to experience that and live in that in Jesus name Amen God bless you, go in God's peace